You are listening to the JCN Clinic Podcast. The JCN Clinic Podcast is a place where nutritionists Jessica Cox and Carissa Mason get real about nutrition and living a healthy life. They share with you their passion and their clinical knowledge for a fun, no BS approach to looking after yourself. Please enjoy today's episode and don't forget to subscribe and iTunes. Welcome to the JCN Clinic Podcast Show. I'm Jessica. I'm Carissa. And we are coming to you from different parts of the globe today, which is a little bit exciting. I'm sitting on the floor in Italy in our little mm, shack, I want to call it. (laughs) And Carissa's back in Australia. So this is our first trial of speaking to each other, recording the podcast from different um, parts of the world. We did plan on doing this and giving it a test before I left, but that didn't happen, did it? Yeah, no, absolutely not. I think like if we just give everyone the disclaimer beforehand that this is, here's here's what we're up against, different countries. A microphone that's only partially working, (laughs) a microphone that's only partially working. Um, What else? I just turned the sound off. (laughs) One actually broke. I unpacked Michelle's awesome packing of my microphone because I couldn't, I was having a meltdown trying to pack it at the clinic on the last day and she did it for me and then I unpacked it and it just fell into pieces, the stand. So So we've got that. We've got um, sound stuff that we've just spent half an hour trying to work out. So we're going to do the best we can. Um, we've got connectivity issues because Jess is literally in a shanty in somewhere in Italy and I'm downstairs in my house, which is solid concrete and the internet reception is questionable at times. Um, yeah, so bear with us guys. We're going to be doing the best that we can, but it makes it a little bit more exciting. Yeah, exactly. We're going to do the best we can guys. That's the main thing. And I've just woken up even though it's like. Well, it's now 8.30ish, I think. But, yeah, I woke up just before this. So I'm on Italy time. Everyone goes to bed here so late. Like we went to bed at 11.30 last night and we could still hear the kids next door up. Like everyone's up really late. And, yeah, it's it's really unusual to be up early. Although I think people do still get up early to a point, but then you have siesta in the afternoon. So it's just... Yeah, totally the whole concept of being up at like 5.36 is just out the window at the moment. I'm like, oh, my God, i got to get up at quarter to eight. It's so early. <laughs> is it still dark there, though? Because I know like when Tam, like is it like does no. the sun come up at the same time? No. Get, no, it still gets up relatively early, but it's it's light. So like it's, it's light still. Well, the sun sets at close to eight. I think it goes down at about a bit after eight. 8.30, but it doesn't get dark until at least 9 o'clock. So that's what yep. most people are sitting down eating at like 9, 9.30. And that's kids yep. too. Like it's just really common to have dinner late. Yeah, so yep. it's a little bit. I remember when Tan late. was in um, Ireland for eight years, like because I feel like time-wise, this is how come I can work out our time difference so easily because it's just you're literally an hour difference to when she was in Dublin. So like, but it was exactly the same. Like like I would be talking to her at like 8.30 at night and it would be pitch black here and it'd be and she'd be like, no, nah, the sun doesn't go down until like 9 o'clock, you know, everyone's up till 11 or midnight. She wouldn't even go out sometimes till dinner yeah. till like 10.30 at night. I'm like, are you kidding? Like I'm in bed by then, asleep. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's bizarre. But um, 
Anyway, I'm fueled. I'm fueled with matcha, so we're all good. <laughs> I was about to say that. I'm like, you better have had your matcha. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about upper GI symptoms, um, or I should probably not symptoms, upper GI um, complaints, let's conditions. call them, or conditions. I've never been a fan of the word complaints. It's commonly used, but I feel like it's like people are like, I'm sick. <laughs> I don't feel well. It's such a horrible word. <laughs> Yeah, it is. I don't actually think I really use the word complaints. I think I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a condition girl. I'm a conditions lady. Yeah. So we're going to be discussing those, which is interesting when we're talking about what we we're going to chat over today. I was like, it's it's a one of those things like, oh, we haven't really delved into that, have we? And it's such a, a common area. We've probably touched on mm-hmm. the different things we're talking about in different podcasts, but this is a really nice way of tying everything together. So Yes. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of the common presentations when we're seeing um, issues in that upper GI area and we're going to talk about um, how these things can occur and also give you guys a bit of an idea of of treatments that we might look at and um, how we would address these at the JCN clinic. So, why don't we start with some of the more common conditions, Um, although in saying that, I think a lot of these are common, Um, but I thought we could start with something as simple as good old indigestion. Um, I feel like indigestion is really, really common and something I would see, I'm not sure about yourself, in majority of clients, Um, and I know even... For myself, like if I'm really stressed and um, probably eating on the go too much, that it's one of the things that pops up for me and gives me an idea of like, okay, Jesse, you need to calm the farm. <laughs> like it's yeah, just yeah. super, super common. <laughs> um, but I think indigestion, just to describe that, because I think also when we talk with clients, they can get a little bit confused when we say, do you experience indigestion or reflux? Indigestion is more of that feeling of like a um, a pressure or um, a pain or um, I would say a slight little bit of a burn in the stomach too, which can start to bring in the reflux as well. But it feels in the middle of the chest slightly to the left and, and it can be quite painful. Some people have definitely associated it with thinking they're having a heart attack. Like I think we've all heard those yeah. stories because it can be quite aggressive and it's right in that same area that can really pull you up and go, oh, my God, oh, my God, is that my stomach yeah. or am I going to die? <laughs> yeah, 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 100%. And then I think too, like – I kind of explain it to some of my clients too, like 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 instead of like even getting that nitty gritty into it, I'm just like, do you ever get a feeling where you eat your food and you feel like it just sits mm-hmm. in that, you know, that that kind of like below your sternum cavity where it just it feels like it's not digesting, it's causing you pain, and you just got this lump mm-hmm. sitting there, and you may get burping with that, you may get a little bit of reflux with that, and mm-hmm. yeah, that's and if people say yes, and I'm like, okay, cool, we've got indigestion, so. Yeah. Isn't it? I used to always think up until I did my nutrition degree that it was intergestion, not indigestion. Do you know what I mean? Like I never – it was one of those things until I saw it written down. I was like, oh, now it makes sense. <laughs> I think a lot of people do say it with a T in there. <laughs> yeah, I think I just had always done that. I was, I'd always been like, intergestion, and until I actually saw it written down, I was like, in digestion. <laughs> 
yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. It's, yeah, it's very much like that feeling of a, a rock or a pressure just sitting in that chest yep. cavity. Yeah, it's, it's not very nice. And it's generally, it's generally experienced after eating, but I would say people sometimes can experience it um, outside of, to- of eating too. But majority of the time, um, yeah, I would say it, it's, it's with and after eating. And usually the reason is that, I would say for most people, it's being in a in a stress state and um, eating your food and not having the adequate secretions happening within well within the mouth yep. to start with, but then also within your stomach. And it's like the food goes into your yep. stomach and it's just not ready for the food. It's just like in a <laughs> stomach's like, what's going on here? And also with that, I'd say would be eating like being in that stress state, but also eating really fast as well, like being overly hungry and shoving your food down and just putting too much food into your stomach too quickly, um, which I think most people have probably experienced at a point. And is that that feeling of pressure um, that you feel within the stomach itself. So I usually find that it's more um, the stress state and that like increase of food that tends to cause indigestion. But then we do see, which we'll be talking about a lot, problems um, associated with the the um, what's going on in the small intestinal tract and how that can feed back into putting pressure on the stomach as well. So, which we'll be talking a bit more about conditions yeah. like SIBO and so forth. What are your thoughts on that, Miss Carissa? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yes, well, I think I'm just trying to watch you because I feel like the connection's coming and going. Oh. Um, can you hear me okay at the moment? Yeah, I just went to take a sip of water and literally drew it down my face. <laughs> so, like, how, like, just to give everyone an idea of how our upper GI works, I think is <laughs> right. Yeah. That's cool. That's what I do. I go to take a sip and just spill shit all over myself. Um, All right. So just like I think too, like this is how I explain it to my clients too, just for indigestion, but just so they get an idea of, you know, all the the systems that are at play with Mm -hmm. just digestion and upper digestion from the get-go. So first and foremost, we actually need our, um, you know, all of our stomach acid secretion. So just at that stomach level to kick in. But for them to kick in, we actually have to visually see our food, mm-hmm. smell our food and taste our food. So those three, you know, sensory things that we have going on, um, you know, from a visual point of view and from a smell point of view and from a taste point of view, like they are what actually, you know, kickstart that digestive process. So it's Mm. kind of like we smell something or see something um, first and then that kind of sends a little message up to our brain that says, oh, yeah, there's freaking food coming. (laughs) And then we we put something into our mouth and we taste it and then it's like our taste buds also send (laughs) – also send a little message up to the brain and then that's like a little bit of a feedback loop that sends a message to the stomach that says right you've got food coming boost that stomach acid to break this shit down right so in response to that like obviously you know hydrochloric acid boosts and that is what we need to actually break down our food so you can already see right from the get-go if we're eating on the run we're stressed anything that shuts off that process Mm. you've got food hitting 
just the stomach and the stomach acid into it's going into an environment that's not 100 percent ready for it yeah it's so like that's it's just... that's basically what indigestion is intergestion yeah. um <laughs> but it's then as part of that even just from the next part down we've also got you know our liver comes into play um our gallbladder comes into play and our pancreas comes into play as well so we've got our liver our gallbladder and liver you know they have a lot to do with the bile flow that breaks down fats and emulsifies fats we've got our pancreatic enzymes we've got amylase protease lipase they break down our, our macronutrients and things like that. So that's just even as stuff starts to hit the small intestine. So the mm. upper part of digestion, there's so much that can go wrong with that from the get-go if we're, you know, not even just, you know, taking the time to eat our food properly. So I just saw your eye twitch. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> You're meant to be relaxed, Coach. You're on holidays. <laughs> <laughs> No, they're, they're all. That's so yeah, really so I think I think sometimes for me, like explaining that, I can't. Are you talking? <laughs> <laughs> I did, but no, you keep going. Oh, sorry. Yeah, because sometimes I feel like our connection delay is slow. What I was just going to say was I feel like if I explain it to my clients like that, then they kind of get an idea of which part of their upper digestive tract is not working properly and why we need to support these areas so yeah no it's a it's a good summary definitely and I think um it's important as you said for people to realize that it does start right back at the point of um before we even put the food in our mouth and I think it sort of comes back and speaks to that more holistic approach that we take and looking at uh, our lifestyle and not only about the food that we eat, which is obviously vital, but also the state that we eat in um, and yep. having those initial secretions and those, those sensory stimulations to get those secretions going is so important just to kickstart all of those mechanisms. And if you're Absolutely. not getting those, those um, initial um, important feedback loops initiated then the problem is that it becomes like um, a block from the start and what we see is that we're getting an increased pressure or load happening in the small intestinal tract as you were just highlighting when it comes to things like secretions from the pancreas and our bile flow and so forth like they've got a really important job to to play in all of this but if we're having food that's being released from the stomach that hasn't been adequately broken down because we haven't had these initial feedback um, systems kicked in in the most appropriate way and had our food in our stomach broken down appropriately, appropriately, then the food, when it hits that small intestinal tract, it's just so much harder for those um, other downstream systems to do their job and that's where, yeah, it's it's really fascinating for us because we can see how things can start right at the start of the process of that right. food entering this, that gastrointestinal system and see that downstream effect. So it's pretty cool how it's all interlinked. And one of the other things I was just thinking about, it's probably jumping a bit around the place, but just we're talking about the um, those initial secretions is the importance of bitter foods um, and how yeah. bitter foods are used to stimulate those secretions and are the most in one of well realistically the, the most important group of foods or even um i would say um, sensory um stimulations that get those um the, the, get that hydrochloric acid going in the stomach and 
it's it's something that I was even talking to Damien about the other day that's done here um, culturally where they'll start a meal with the bitter greens and have like a really simple bitter green salad before going into yeah. their main. And it's really about having those bitter foods and getting those secretions going. Um, and it's, I guess it's something that we play a little bit with to a point with like the apple cider vinegars and so forth. Um, which again, as I said, I'm jumping around a bit cause there's some of the treatment stuff, but I just think yeah, it's but- just a good time to bring it up because there's, there's ways that we can look at getting those secretions going and how they can have that downstream effect. Yeah, absolutely. And like, yeah, I was going to mention some of the other bitter greens, but like, I know, like, just honestly, like, like, like everyone laughs, but I'm just always like with my clients, like make sure you have a handful of greens on the side of your meal, like something live, (laughs) but, but like for me, like it's always rocket. Do you know what I mean? Like I I just can't get enough of rocket. I feel like anyone, I feel like the more wild grown rocket is, and it's probably more what you guys are eating over there and your wild, you know, like your, your wild greens and stuff like that, but you can actually taste the bitterness in it, which I think is really cool. Like, you know, store brought rockets. Okay. You can sort of get that peppery taste, but when you actually home grow proper rocket and it's wild or you know Mm. it's just like you get the bitter taste in it and you can just tell why it's called a bitter food and I think that's for anyone listening like you don't have to go out and source these crazy you know out really hard to get wild grown bitter greens like if you can freaking awesome and if you're growing them even better but rocket's such an easy one rocket and apple cider vinegar are just two easy ones that you can use to really sort of stimulate your digestion from the get-go so yeah definitely definitely I was um I don't know if it was a study I was reading or something I was listening to, but um, they were talking about with kids these days and how that, particularly from a Western culture point of view, kids are generally having sweet food introduced to their palate from the get-go and even from a vegetable point of view, like we're starting with things like sweet potatoes and carrots and so forth where – Um, they're finding in other cultures they're starting with bitter foods and how important that is for getting their palate used to to bitter Um, and then also yeah yeah, from the the get-go really training their digestive system to use those bitters and get those secretions going but because in our culture we're using these sweet foods more like we're not stimulating that as strongly and also their little palates are getting attuned with that sweet taste so when they do get bitter they're like oh my god what is this yeah yeah Yeah. generally you see a lot of kids in our culture hate bitter like they just can't stand it so bit of a segue yeah bit of a segue we've got a little bit deterred there so that's um that's indigestion guys um touched on i think the two well we're talking over each other we then touched on reflux as well um and i think they are very obviously intertwined and it's and it's common to have the two of them together but i would also say that you can have them separate so everything we've just talked about in regards to indigestion one of the other commonalities that can come from that is that we get that refluxing of the stomach acid that comes back up the esophagus and can be 
from a symptom point of view, that feels more like a burn, that classic burn, and you feel it come up the esophagus. And some people actually reflux into their mouth, which is horrible, and get that horrible acidic taste into their mouth, which mm. I know I've experienced at points. <laughs> it's pretty gross. I'm sure yeah. everyone has at some point. It's just like not I the most pleasant feeling. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um and the reflux, like the refluxing really is very much associated to everything we're just discussing. I think it's just that it starts to become a little bit more um, severe in some cases yeah. with the, the symptomology and, and, and that increased pressure that's happening in the stomach. And, and I guess the other thing to mention around reflux is sometimes people might have faulty valves. That's less common, but the, the little valve that can be that's at the in your stomach, at the top of your stomach and um, the esophagus, like that can become a little bit faulty. And we do we have certainly seen um, clients in the clinic where that is part of a condition for them. And and that can be a little bit a little bit harder to work with for people and you really do need to consider um, changes around certain foods and so forth. But I think one of the things I wanted to talk about with reflux is that there's, and we're probably going to get a little bit riled up here with this one, but generally from a presentation point of view and going to your GP, it's, it's going to be treated with PPIs, things like Nexium and so forth, where Chris is making faces already, where the common, <laughs> the common way this is looked at is that it's an over secretion of acid in the stomach so we take um, something like nexium to lower the secretion of hydrochloric acid so that from a symptom picture can take away that burning sensation and people think that they've dealt with issue but in most cases i would say even like 95 percent of the cases it's the wrong way to go and often makes the gastrointestinal system um, and the follow-on issues a lot more pronounced. Um, the problem is that you're lowering the secretion in the stomach, which means you're not going to break down your food as effectively. And then as we are talking about before, you're going to get that food passing into the small intestinal tract with food that um, isn't all ready to be absorbed in the most optimal way. And as a result, we're going to see increased fermentation in the small intestinal tract, more of a presence of potentially small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, one of the most common precursors to something like SIBO is the use of PPIs. Um, it's, it's so, so common. And it really frustrates us as, a, as practitioners because it's still such a common use. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think the other reason it really frustrates us is that it it isn't an underproduction of acid. Like, yes, there can be presentations where there may be an underproduction of acid, but there's so much more um, unique. It's usually the opposite where it's an under secretion and your people are actually not getting that feedback that we're talking about when the food is going into their stomach. And often, interestingly, as the food leaves the stomach and goes into the small intestinal tract, that's when there can be a feedback to the stomach where that food's there and the, and the, the, the intestinal tract is saying back to the, to the stomach, 
what are you doing? There's stuff here that needs to be broken down. And then the stomach's like, oh, crap. And it starts secreting the acid at that <laughs> point. And it's kind of a little bit too late because the food's already leaving the stomach. And then we get this increased acid in a stomach where the food's already leaving. And then we get that horrible burning presentation and then that potential reflux at the same time. So in a weird way, I think it's kind of fascinating because your body's telling you something there. It's like, it's having this, this talk back system and going, hang on guy, like this isn't right. And then instead of listening to that and looking at treating it in a way that's actually treating the cause, we're going in and just throwing this band-aid approach on it, which makes everything often 10 times worse. And we're often picking yep. up the pieces of that. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think you explained that super well without getting too angry about the overprescription of proton pump inhibitor drugs. <laughs> the other thing, the other thing is that obviously too, like you know, you've got to look at these these sorts of drugs. Like, so there's you there's your pharmaceutically prescribed ones, which is what Jess was just talking about, like your Nexiums and so on and so forth. Those guys, but then you just also have the over the counter stuff. Like, I think we've talked about this in podcasts, but you've got your quickies and your Gaviscons yeah. and all of that kind of stuff that you know people just chew down like they're bloody lollies. And mm -hmm. honestly, like, I don't like. There's so many like nutritional risk factors that come with those as well. Like B12 mm -hmm. is a huge one, you know, that I feel like all of yeah. like especially things like your um, quickies and all of that, it really starts to mess with the absorption of those nutrients. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just not having this, you know, Gaviscon is just like it works similar but it just to a proton pump inhibitor but instead of actually mimicking the or actually like slowing down the secretion of stomach acid, it just puts like a coating or a film over your mute like over your gut acid mm. not the best thing mm. um <laughs> so i just feel like yeah like there's so again these things are just all band-aid fixes um or band-aid approaches to an underlying an underlying problem and yeah like as jess was saying like you know i, I honestly think you would be so bang on 95 percent of the time nexium and those proton pump inhibitor drugs long term pretty much cause SIBO and yeah. other lower bowel issues yeah. like it's just as soon as someone comes in and they've got all these gut presentations and you know yep you tick all the boxes for SIBO yep you tick all the boxes for lower bowel stuff and then you get onto their upper GI and you talk to them about stuff and I reckon eight times out of ten they're like yeah yeah I've had re I had reflux for years and I got put on Nexium yeah. and I'm like oh cool how long did you take Nexium for oh yeah no I'm still taking it. oh no I stopped taking it, but I took it for years like it's like oh shit here we go yeah, like so right. for years you haven't been breaking down your food properly for years you, you know you've yeah. had you know irritants in, you know hitting your small intestine and your large intestine causing you know problems like it's no wonder we've got all these lower bowel issues like if the upper stuff isn't right the lower yeah. stuff is not going to be right so yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's like I just had a, an analogy pop into my head. It's just I was just thinking of it like from a river point of view, you know, like if you've got like upstream, you've got like a lot of rubbish in that that river and also a lot of blockages like downstream. How can you expect that to be flowing crystal clear mm. and having like a perfect ecology of fish <laughs> swimming around you know the gut's the same like if upstream has got all these blocks and um imbalances going on like how can we expect the lower bowel to be functioning in an optimal way like how can those bacteria be 
being fed in the lower bowel, like the, the right type of substrates. You know, it's just, it just all makes sense. And as, as usual too, it's for us, you know, highlighting for people that it is an interconnected system, like our whole body is. And we've, I think it's, it's something we're constantly wanting to highlight. Like if we've got things going on up in this area we're talking about, then there's not, I always say to my clients, it's not like there's um, a door that locks these these segments off like even when we're talking about the small intestinal bowel with SIBO and the lower bowel it's not like one is um, separate from the other like they're Mm. interconnected so all of these there's always most of the time going to be a downstream effect yep 100 percent right on (laughs) (laughs) and then um i sorry you go I said, I feel like just while we're on reflux and indigestion, we should probably (laughs) – now I can't say it right, so now I'm fixated on it. Um, I feel like like burping should be thrown in there as well because I I feel like that fits in with the whole indigestion picture. But honestly, like burping is just another sign of low stomach acid production. Like, you know, it's – I feel like it's part of our culture to be a bloody champion burper. Like In Australia. Australia mate I feel like it's become part of our culture like if you can't like belch like a freaking champ then there's something wrong with you (laughs) especially for boys and it's just like if you're someone who's eating all the time and constantly hitting like hitting your sternum and burping and all that kind of stuff or you eat and you're kind of like "Eh, eh, eh," like these are all signs that you're like again from the get-go you're not break you you gut is not ready for your food or for whatever reason it's not secreting enough hydrochloric acid to break down your food so obviously like you know taking the time to eat is part of that but as like Jess sort of said before like eating on the go eating when you're stressed like all Mm. of these things will secrete um suppress stomach acid secretions as well so yeah yeah burping burping falls into that I think oh yeah definitely yeah. And again, I can <laughs> like putting my hand up a lot here, not so much these days, but like in, in years gone by, like I know when my gut wasn't at its best capacity, let's say, like I had a lot of those symptoms. Like I, I was always, no, I can remember living with one of my best mates and the housemates where, you know, it was just a running joke between us, like with the ridiculous amount of burping that we could do. And I used to, you know, I even remember getting in trouble off my dad, like as a teenager for the level of burps that I would do. And I'd be like, I'm not like doing this just to, you know, on purpose. I'm not like trying to push this out. Like I just had so much fermentation there that I could do these epic burps, which you just think are really typical, you know, again, Australian culture, you think it's really funny, but it was like, no, actually Jessica, (laughs) that isn't right. You shouldn't have that amount of gas production to to project out there. I know one of the biggest things for me is like in terms of indigestion and just burping and heartburn is um, white bread. Like interestingly, so on the weekend, you're going to love this. Like here's just how we – you know, managed to sabotage ourselves. So I decided I was going to cook Mick and I breakfast on Sunday because we had we couldn't go out for breakfast because bug can't be left 
on her own because <laughs> she just shreds her collar. <laughs> so like, I'm like, that's all right. You look after her. I'll go down to the shop, get us some, you know, some gluten-free bread or some really good quality like rice sourdough or something and some eggs and stuff and I'll just cook breakfast on the Weber. And he's like, yep, sweet, no worries. Anyway, three bloody bakeries and shops later, I finally found this 100% organic um, spelt sourdough, mm-hmm. right? So it, it was this epic feat just to get enough stuff to make breakfast. Like one place, the avocados were shit. I don't like shit avocados. So, you know, had to go to a different place to get good mm-hmm. avocados. The first bakery didn't have any sourdough. What's, oh, they had like a white sourdough. I was like, no, nah, I want like a rye or a spelt or something like that. That's my compromise on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, anyway, so it took me, it was honestly like I got back and mixed like it's freaking lunchtime <laughs> I'm like yeah well it's a bit of a feat to get all these ingredients together I should have just bloody gone to Coles but I thought no I'll do the right thing and go to my local bakeries and you know fruit shops and things like that anyway cut that shit short I got I got this bread back and I'm making like got the weather on everything like that ready to make breakfast and the girl that sold me this bread like she was not stereotyping, but just young, didn't give a shit about being at work on a Sunday. Like just like honestly, no interest in serving me. Maybe possibly one of the worst, hottest coffees I've ever had in my life. That shit aside, she just wasn't in a good mood. I'm like, I don't care if you're hungover, whatever it is that your problem is, just can you be nice to me because it's Sunday and I'm in a good mood. Anyway, so I I was getting her to talk me through the different um, types of sourdoughs and stuff that they had and they had heaps of really nice ones. Anyway, but they had this 100% organic spelt, so I'm like, sweet, I'll get that. My gut should be fine with that for breakfast, blah, blah, blah. Probably paid like $8 something for it. Oh my God. And then as I'm making breakfast, this is a long way to get to my indigestion story, but anyway, <laughs> you guys need all, you need all the details. Um, I've got, I'm just about got the toaster out, everything's nearly ready, just got to pop the bread in the toaster, and I open up this bread, and I'm just like, honestly, my heart just sank. Mm. It was literally just a loaf of white food fucking cob bread like I was just gutted right (laughs) so she's just obviously pulled the wrong doesn't even give a shit just giving me whatever anyway and so I've looked I've said to Mickey Mix like I think that's white bread I'm like it is white bread (laughs) and I tasted I'm like it's definitely white bread I'm like oh far out Mix like do you want to take it back I'm like I can't like the bacon's cooking the eggs are cooking I'm just like screw it let's just Whatever, I'm just going to do it. Anyway, honestly, Sunday by Sunday afternoon, like I was burping like a champ, like just like it was like something was fizzing and just bubbling oh, inside no. me. Mick had the worst heartburn because he doesn't eat bread. Like he was just like, he's like, this is why I don't eat bread. Like he actually had heartburn. I was just like, bleh, bleh. <laughs> I'm like, it's that fucking bread. We literally just threw it in the bin. Like I'm like, do you want me to put it in your freezer or something? He's like, I'm not going to touch it. I'm like, I can't even, I don't even give it to my dog. So I just, like I just threw it. I literally, like normally I just, yeah, I just, it was such a waste. I just threw it in the bin. I was like, you are poison. Oh, so, no. Anyway, that was my story. First time in a long time I burped like that, but holy crap, like. <laughs> oh, and then I had man. really bad gut pain as well. I was whinging to the girls about it on the phone Monday. But anyway, that's my story. Yeah. That, that sounds, indigestion. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> So I think the other areas which realistically is just a more pronounced presentation of what we've been discussing is, um, is GERD, um, or GORD, GERD or GORD, which stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease. And look, I see, I see things like GERD really as, again, it's going to be, um, more Western diagnosis and it's generally going to be a a severe presentation of everything we've been talking about. So someone's getting 
a really high amount of heartburn, a really high amount of acid reflux, and it's significantly affecting their day-to-day living. So they're the sort of person that's going to have been to their GP and generally without question, they're going to be put on some sort of protein pump inhibitor. Um, but realistically, I, I, you know, GERD is just um, a diagnosis of what we've been talking and. about at a severe level and... And, Carissa, and? <laughs> and I was going to say, usually with long-term of this, by the time they get the GERD yes. diagnosis, there usually is some sort of damage to the esophageal lining from yes. the constant burning and reflux and yes. like that. So usually these people have had um, endoscopies, so scopes, yeah. and there has been, you know, there is mild to moderate to severe um, damage to that um, to that lining of that wall of the esophagus. Exactly. So, yeah, so I think it's important to point out as well, like, again, what you were probably going down the road of saying, it is just a diagnosis. Yeah. I think I have just – I just feel like this is such a condition that could, can be so easily treated, if not reversed and repaired as well. Yeah. Like, just with pulling the shit out of the diet, looking at the right types of supplements and soothing of the gut lining and all of that, like, I feel like – GERD is not a, okay, you've got this, you've now got it for the rest of your life diagnosis. I think it's just something that they're like, right, you've actually had this for long enough, we can now categorize it as a disease and it's caused damage to your, you know, your esophageal lining and Mm -hmm. potentially even your stomach lining. Mm -hmm. And you may or may not also have some stomach ulcers associated with that, but yeah. How often have you done gut work with people and you clean up the diet, get the shit out of there? Usually white bread is and gluten is a big can be a big trigger for it, but sugar's another one. And just talk to get all the eating stuff right. And then, you know, twelve months later people rehab their scopes and stuff done and the inflammation's, you know, pretty yeah. much gone. Or if it was severe, it's now moderate. Like it's yeah. you know, uh, it's something it's so that is true. so, so treatable. So yeah. I love that about presentations like this. Like they are most of the time relatively easy for us. To work with and they do yep. respond so quickly. Um, but, yeah, you're definitely the, they're that long-standing presentation of the heartburn and the refluxing often, refluxing often has <laughs> that, um, yeah, that increased damage and, and generally may also have those ulcerations, which can be horrible um, as far as pain goes. But there's so much that yeah. we can do for that Um with, with how we would look at treating things again at that core level. Um, and I think, you know, just to bring into this, I guess that's where conditions like Barrett's come in, which is again sort of dialed up next level where you're getting, you, Chris was just mentioning where you're getting that um, damage in the esophagus, but with Barrett's it's, it's basically going to the level where we're getting cellular changes within the esophagus. So we've had so much damage over time where, we're actually starting to see the cells change and it can, I'm going to say can, this is where it can be really scary for people, but it can be um, associated with with cancer. So you can actually get um, that esophageal cancer because of that ongoing cellular disruption. And you'll see Barrett's is usually diagnosed because through going in with an endoscopy or with the scope, they'll see those cellular changes starting to occur. Now, just because someone has Barrett's does not mean that that is the road that you will take. But of course, when you're diagnosed with something like Barrett's, it's 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 a lot more severe than just our day-to-day reflux and indigestion and is even more of a red flag. Is like, let's get in and deal with this. Let's get in and find mm-hmm. out what's going on. And 
it certainly makes my blood boil when when something like GERD and Barrett's in particular are treated with like yeah PPIs <laughs> because and just uh, and treated treat with PPIs and no mention of diet no. no mention of you know mucosal lining support like the amount of clients I've had that have had GERD or you know some kind of some form of chronic acid reflux and they've been to the gastros and all of that obviously all of that's not saying all gastros do this but there's a good you know a chunk of my clients that have been to gastros and it's all just been no okay here's you know you just need to take this long term you know I think stress is something that is brought up a lot. Yeah. Uh, manage your stress and blah blah blah. But there's just it doesn't really go beyond that. And I yeah. think that's where the frustrating thing is as well, where it's just like from our end, it's such a treatable condition and mm-hmm. such in terms of it becoming worse, like Barrett's or potentially cancer, it's such a preventable condition as yeah. well, which is so frustrating on our end. You're like, dude, you don't have to freaking live like this. Like, yeah, let me at you. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> And also, just to sort of jump out of Barrett's um, to something less, um, I guess, severe, but also something that we see a lot of and can be really um, hard for people is that the, the word that we use for, for it is halitosis, but essentially that just means really bad breath. And yeah, we all can have pretty feral breath first thing in the morning. Like, you know, that's <laughs> – I know Damien's um, – always one to point out if I roll over and give him a little bit of a <laughs> too close to his face in the morning <laughs> or after my matcha apparently post matcha breath isn't too great <laughs> but what, doesn't he like the smell of pond water on his face <laughs> like I have a first thing in the morning have a matcha breathe into Damien's face guaranteed not a good outcome <laughs> <laughs> but you That's know awesome. jokes aside halitosis um is actually quite severe bad breath and it's it is relatively common and it's a hard one because we all want to be polite to each other and for people to actually you know to realize that this is going on usually someone close to them has let them know um, but I think with mm. halitosis, it gets to the point where you can really tell, like it can be a really horrible taste yeah. in your mouth. You can actually, you know, it, you can really smell the breath yourself. And I know over the years I've had clients yeah. with halitosis and again, everything that we're talking about, you usually see an interconnection here where there'd be some form of these other presentations. And I think what I love to really highlight with, with halitosis is that, it's coming back to these underlying factors. Like we have to think back to what's going on in the stomach, what's going on in the small intestinal tract. Like where is this coming from to increase this odor that is essentially coming out through the mouth because the mouth is just one end of that gastrointestinal tract like the other end. So again, I'll probably Mm. often say to my clients, um, you know, obviously we might have, a lot of stinky wind coming out one end, but you can also have some pretty foul gas coming out the other end and that's your mouth. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, like even just on that, even if you just even keep it localized to the upper GI, just literally for bad breath too, like you got your mouth has its own microbiome yes, as well, which yeah, I think is point. really important for people to realize. And, you know, like if you've got an overgrowth in your small intestinal tract or your large bowel, or you've got like disruptions to, you know, your gut ecology and all of that, more often than not, it is going to throw out the balance of your gut microbiome yeah. as well. And like, I think, um, like, um, oral yeast is a really, yes. probably the most, yeah, most yeah, one yeah, is people, yeah. what people's really 
familiar with when you get oral thrush sorry yeah. when you get that really white coating on your yeah. tongue and you get when it's really bad for people like they get it through their gums like it's a pretty feral little condition and yeah. that comes with a bloody raging bad breath as well oh, like God, my yeah. clients that have had you know, oral thrush have just got this horrible breath that comes with it so you know like if you've got stuff going on with your breath and even just like from a bacterial I'm a big one like I know we don't do it a lot in practice anymore but I really think your tongue is a really good indicator of your oral yeah. cavity health and yeah. stuff as well. Like you shouldn't have this thick white coating on your tongue or this thick yellow coating on your yeah. tongue. Your tongue should be a nice, almost like a nice strawberry pink color, basically, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, you sh- so that, you know, that's a really big indicator even to if, you know, you, you c- can be a massive indicator of your lower gastrointestinal tract in terms of bacterial balance as well. So, mm-hmm. no, that's a really good point. Definitely. Cause that's something that we do see a lot of, um, and even conditions like gingivitis, right? Like that's something that more people mm-hmm. associate with going to their dentists as far as diagnosis. But you just mentioned about that oral microbiome. Like it's, you know, it, it is an, another factor we're talking about. Obviously that initial um, secretions within the mouth, but then we've got the bacteria within the mouth to even consider. So there's so much going on in that that upper area that I think we don't really put as much of a spotlight onto these days and um yeah yeah it is that starting point so next on the list before we dive more into even though we've talked a little bit about the causes I um was talking a little bit about b12 which you had brought up Uh um and I think it's important to talk about b12 in this zone because there is that absorption happening in the upper digestive system and Generally, we do see a lot of poor B12 absorption when we're dealing with the conditions that we're talking about. Um, And I would also preference that too with something like celiacs where we're seeing um, reactivity to to gluten and particularly with celiacs where we're getting that corrosion to the small intestinal tract and really interrupting that absorption of B12. but generally, I wouldn't say with all cases, but I would say with a lot of the present, a lot of the cases and presentations we're talking about, there'll be that reduction of B12 absorption. Would you say you see a yep. lot of the same thing? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and I just thought of something too. What you're saying, talking about like celiac disease and that. Like I've even had a few, like a, just a handful of clients um, with a gluten sensitivity thing where they've had the only only thing wrong with them. Um, from a pathology, strictly pathology point of view, is low B12. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had, like, I think I've had three clients in the last couple of years where they just have this esophageal agitation mm-hmm. um, and it's literally the rest of their GI is from just like from a, like a symptomatic point of view and talking to them is functioning like a champ. Yeah. But they have this, you know, this un, like this, this, esophageal freaking agitation where it either affects their swallowing, it feels yeah. like it's burning or agitated, they're not getting reflux, they're not getting um, in, like indigestion or anything like that. And it's almost like, so, you know, like obviously we've chatted before, I know I've done like an Instagram live about it, about like silent, silent celiac disease, yeah. um, you know, for people. But it's interesting and like you do a gluten sensitivity panel because mm. I think and unless people are – 
really like getting the lower GI symptoms and all of that. Like I feel like it's a really hard one to get people to part with for no reason and trial a good three months off gluten. Anyway, I have had like I think it's three or four clients where they've come through with this very similar presentation of just everything – like from a question point of view and a symptom point of view, like you can't fault their GI function mm. unless you wanted to do some digging and do some testing. Um, their you know, upper GI stuff, apart from this, you know, complaint is completely fine. But the only thing that comes up from a pathology point of view is low B12, yeah. you know, and then the only, th- some of them are just ha- like two clients are just happy to pull gluten for three months and wham, bam, re-scoped, inflammation's gone down and, B12 starts to come back up mm-hmm. literally by just pulling gluten. And then I've had two other clients and one was a guy in particular, he was just not budging on it. So we did a gluten sensitivity panel yeah. um, and he took, cause you know, he just wanted to see, he's like, I'm not pulling this unless I know I have to. I'm like, fair call mate, let's do yeah. a gluten sensitivity panel. Sure enough, it came up. He wasn't celiac, but just sense like gluten intolerant, what we yeah. call gluten intolerant or gluten sensitive. He did it for three months, came back three months later and he'd been, 100% symptom-free, like within a couple of weeks, but three months just got better and better. The scopes had been redone. Everything was everything had calmed down. Um, his B, yeah, B12 started to come back. Actually, I don't know if we retested his B12. I think he was I think he was happy to go back and do that with his GP. But just yeah. even from like a putting on weight point of view, like yeah, all of these wow. things, like in terms of training, it just and just I think it's just so like and this was just all upper GI stuff, you know that. Yeah. I just find that like you don't you don't it's one of those things like it's not taught to you in a textbook but you mm. sort of see it like enough times and that's just a cluster of times to just be yeah. like right you know just from this tiny little upset to the whole upper GI you know functioning we've got low B12 and you know therefore you know more he was definitely more stressed without the B12 because obviously B12 is so involved in you know neurotransmitter function anyway and go on yeah, about yeah, it exactly but I just thought I'd mention that while you were talking about gluten stuff so no that's that's good it's 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 so good I think for people to hear an actual presentation from mm. how that can how that can be seen in a clinical perspective and just all the nuts and bolts of how that can come together and in particular with something like silent celiacs or yeah underlying gluten intolerance without those Mm -hmm. typical presentations we're used to seeing but yeah Yeah. I think I think b12 is a really common one and just sort of to to sort of finish that that up a bit um I was referring back to obviously a lot of the um the reflux and the indigestion all those other underlying issues that we've talked about being a problem with b12 and just so people understand the stomach essentially is an area where we produce a protein called intrinsic factor, which we secrete, oh, and yeah. then that's combined with B2, uh, B2 wrong vitamin desk out with B12 <laughs> in the small intestinal tract for absorption. So think of those guys hanging out together, they want to hold hands and skip along into your small intestinal tract and be yeah. absorbed effectively. So if you are not producing enough intrinsic factor within your stomach, then mm-hmm. you're going to have compromised B12 absorption, yep. which comes back to what's going on in your stomach. So I just wanted to highlight yep. that one as well. Good old yep. intrinsic factor. And I think too, like with you can get tested for intrinsic factor, but it's a it's almost an autoimmune condition in itself. Like if you flip that switch where, um, you know, you're not producing enough intrinsic factor to um, absorb your B12, that that doesn't, like, that doesn't just come 
quickly like that. Like this is time after time after time of agitation to the GI lining, you know, it's poor stomach acid secretion, all of that. And then it's almost like, I think it almost is um, an autoimmune like autoimmune condition now it's classed as when you know you kind of actually just stop like the intrinsic factor just kind of stops working so it's a yeah. type of anemia you don't absorb your b12 yeah. properly anymore and then you know i don't know whether it's reversible but you know then you have to look at being on b12 shots so i mean b12 injections to get your b12 because you're actually not going to absorb it in your gut so mm-hmm. that's obviously worst case scenario yeah. and you know we do deal with that as well but coming back to it like again so treatable so preventable yeah, so for sure so let's move along. We've talked about a few things in this area already, but just more onto these underlying causes of what we've been discussing. So I think just to start with, um, you know, one of the things we, we definitely mentioned right at the start is that being in an optimal state when you are ready to eat, so you are getting all those right biofeedback mechanisms in place. So it seems so simple, but essentially being in a more of a rest and digest phase where you're not eating on the go, sitting down and actually consuming your food in um, an unstressed manner is so vital. So you are getting those signals from the brain to the stomach, to the small intestinal tract to release the enzymes that are needed. Um, that for me is so vital. And I think, again, we can all think to times where we've really pushed the envelope there and we do eat on the go and we are eating really, really quickly um, or we're stressed at Not work. Not chewing food properly. Yeah, yeah. and we, we definitely feel the consequences of that. So I feel like it's, it's something that I really want to highlight that is really important. And I know mm-hmm. we deal with this with clients every day. And it's, it's funny because in some ways it's such an easy thing to do. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's kind of an, yeah, it, it's like you don't have to take anything. You don't have to like pop a yeah. pill or anything like that. But no, people find it the hardest to do because you're saying, look, I need you to step away from your computer for even just 10 to 15 minutes, just take a couple of minutes and sit down, have a few breaths and then eat your lunch or to go for a yeah. walk outside, sit in the park, eat your lunch, then go back inside. You're, I'm sure your job is not going to fall apart if you take 10 to 15 minutes away. And it sounds so simple, but it's the hardest thing for people to do. And I think, you know, even at the clinic, we can relate to that. We make a really strong effort and we did that at the beginning of this year again to get back into the habit because winter always throws us to make sure that we, you know, we get out of the office, we go and sit outside in the mall, have a conversation with each other, get a little bit of filtered sunshine through the buildings (laughs) and sit and have our lunch. And it makes a massive difference to our day and then, of course, our digestion. difference. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. I think another one too is obviously, yeah, chewing properly. I, yeah. Like you you bloody um, phased out a little bit there. You went into slow motion and then super fast motion. I'm getting okay, water. Okay, yeah, Jess is getting water, so I'll keep talking. Um, but I think another really important one is making sure you actually take the time to chew your food properly. Again, this is not something that needs a pill or anything like that. It's literally just taking the time to not – like hoover your food at such a pace that you're swallowing massive chunks of food in one hit. Like you need to chew your food properly. Um, Another one I think too, again, no pills involved, no magic solutions, don't overeat. 
Take time to eat your food, but do not yeah. overeat. Like the big thing is, is like you've kind of got to think from the time you finish your meal, you've got about another 20 minutes yeah. until your gut has actually reached capacity in terms of what it's going to like start to digest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I always say to people, eat until you're satisfied, not until you're full. Because yeah. if you eat until you're full, you're just going to get a lot more bloody full in the next 20 minutes. Yeah. So eat until you're satisfied and learn to stop there because you've still got mm-hmm. 20 minutes. I, I think it's about a 20-minute relay where you yeah. got actually catches up and you actually feel how you're going to feel after a meal so completely overeating and stuffing food and all of that like that is one that's a huge trigger for you know burping indigestion acid reflux all of those sorts of things so yeah it's a big one and it's so so common and we do as a culture have a tendency to overeat and I think a lot of clients that we see don't understand the difference between um, being comfortably full and then full, full, over full and actually mm-hmm. associate being um, full with and, and like a satisfied full. They feel like they yeah. need to be like really bursting full um, and yeah. it's actually retraining around that. But that 20-minute time frame is so important. I often say to clients, look, eat you comfortably full and then let's wait 20 minutes If you're still hungry, if you want to go back for seconds, because a lot of the time people are going back and doing seconds or going straight Mm. into dessert, wait 20 Mm. minutes. If you are actually still hungry, I'm okay if you want to go and have a little bit more. And I would say 9.9 times out of 10, after 20 minutes, most people are like, you know what, actually, I'm not hungry anymore. Or you know what, I don't actually need that um, piece of – I don't know whether it's like going and eating a, a banana or something on top of it or your chocolate or whatever it is. It's just like I don't need that immediate sweet hit that a lot of people associate yeah. with like I've had my meal, I've got to have something sweet straight afterwards. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah so it's so true, so, so true. We're just so conditioned. Oh. oh, I was saying we're just so conditioned I think as a society too, yeah, like exactly what you're saying that unless you're stuffed full, then it hasn't been a good meal or it hasn't been an adequate meal, but we really need to just retrain how we've been kind of taught to think about what is satisfying from a meal, like being full to the eyeballs where, you know, you've got to roll out of your chair and you need a big nap and, yeah. you know, like that's that's unhealthy full. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then I think we did talk a lot, so we won't Pretty much like us when we um, had your... When we had what? I was, I was going to say pretty much like us um, after your going away party. Oh, yes. <laughs> we can blame that on Kev's cake. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that the cake took us over the edge. I remember standing out the front with Alexa and, and just being like, I could just feel my gut expanding. By the time I got home, I was just like, yep, you've done it. <laughs> <laughs> Alexa was the same. It's just, we were just standing out the front waiting for our waiting. Like Drew was picking her up, and I was getting an Uber, and I was just like poking my gut, and she was doing the same thing. <laughs> like, yep, we might have had a bit too much cake. <laughs> <laughs> and we did talk also about. Um, so we won't delve into it too much, but as, as far as an underlying factor in all of this, that those feedback mechanisms. So even back to the stomach and that hydrochloric acid secretion. So we've, we've talked about that initial. Um, the sensory involvement, but also when the food is hitting the stomach itself. Um, yeah. Then also as the food is being released from the stomach into the small intestinal tract and the feedback mechanisms there. So 
you know, the, there is those really cool um, relationships between those secretions, even with bile secretion in the small intestinal tract that then will talk back to the stomach and, and basically keep that whole, um, yeah, again, I keep using the, the, the word biofeedback loop, but essentially keep that all happening um, in, in the right yeah. order. So we've talked about that, but the other thing I wanted to highlight here um, in regards to underlying causes is... Uh, we've talked about SIBO. So I think we just need to really highlight how small intestinal overgrowth can be such a common um, underlying cause of a lot of this. Because I know with my clients, when they're experiencing SIBO or obviously lower bowel dysbiosis, um, they can be a little bit confused about, yeah, but why am I getting these upper GI symptoms? Like how is my SIBO causing mm -hmm. reflux? Um, and I think just to break that down with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, we've got these bacteria in our small intestines creating this increase of fermentable gases and that increase gas, like think of it like um, pressure building up in the small intestinal tract. So we're not meant to have this level of bacteria in our small intestinal tract. So if we're having all of this bacterial gas being produced, that's going to create pressure um, like even from yeah. the point of view of a pressure, I sort of think about that and how that's going to physically be forcing back onto um, like, the, again, those sphincters, thinking about those sphincters pushing back into the stomach and um, increasing that, that again, that, that pressure on the stomach. And then with SIBO and that bacterial fermentation, we're going to have an, a lot more increased um, inflammation, which we've talked yep. about a lot in a lot of different podcasts and how that's going to be disruptive to a lot of the processes that we're talking about as well. So um, I just, I think that we need to just, as always, consider how these underlying microbial imbalances can be at play for so many of the different conditions that we're talking about. Yep. Are you patting your, are you patting the bug, aren't you? Yeah. I can see she's yeah. like, she's kind of half phased out. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah. I was just trying to stop her from barking too, because literally like, if she, like um, someone just walked past, like the, one of the girls that lives upstairs just walked past my screen door, but I was trying to keep her distracted because she had a seen them. She would have just gone nuts and it would have, the podcast show would have been all over. <laughs> I was just like, pay attention to me, bug. Look at me patting you. Just stay here, little princess. She's just woken up from a nap. <laughs> um, and the other thing I wanted just to, um, I'm not sure if you had anything else to add with that, but with SIBO, one of the things I often see with testing is that, when we do test for SIBO, we often test for um, a reactivity to glucose and to lactulose. So we generally yep. at the clinic want to use both to get a comprehensive picture of the small intestinal tract. And generally, most people are positive on the lactulose, which is more the sort of end point um, or the last sort of three quarters of the small intestinal tract, whereas glucose is generally more negative because it's absorbed in that first part of the That's intestinal tract after yep. the stomach. So I find it really fascinating that often if someone gets their results back um, and they have a high glucose as well, you know that that fermentation is happening really high up in the intestinal tract. And often those people will present with more upper GI symptoms. Yeah. So it's not yeah. always a case, but I would say definitely I see a pattern there. 
I definitely, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, 100%. Like, and it, and it just kind of, it just makes sense as well. Like, when oh, you yeah. kind of think about where the different sugars, yeah, are absorbed and all of that. So, yeah. Um, and then let's sort of finish up, unless there's anything else you wanted to mention, because I wanted to delve into just some of the treatment things we've talked about, but from an underlying cause point of view. Um, let's so we've got SIBO. I feel like, yeah, I feel like we pretty much, I yeah, like. Them. Are we like? Are, you, are we kind of going from like lower bowel causing upper stuff? Yeah. Or just I, I think. Well, we could. I guess that's part of um, definitely what we've talked about. Um, but yeah, if you wanted to sort of mention a little bit about that, but essentially, I think we're sort of highlighting how there's that interconnection between what's happening in the intestinal tract lower downstream and that that pushback effect. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I feel like you covered it. (laughs) So let's sort of finish off with the treatment side of things. So I think what we want to talk about here and again without over complicating it too much and not going into too much of the areas where we discussed, but one of them, number one, is that relaxation around food, taking the time, everything that we've talked about there. So um, that would be our number one factor that um, we've got factor. on our list. After that, though, what we're often going to look at in clinic is that if we're seeing a lot of aggravation and inflammation on that mucosal lining, the, particularly the esophagus into the stomach and that top part of the um, intestinal tract called the ileum, what we'll tend to do is use substrates that are soothing so i like to think of it as something that you're taking that's kind of like putting this lovely soothing coating on a very angry layer so we'll <laughs> that's often exactly use... what it's doing. <laughs> so we've got a, a quite a lot of different supplement options there but i just wanted to mention some of my favorites i know people can just grab pretty easy and that's good old slippery elm like oh, oh my god hands down <laughs> Slippery I have seen elm. slippery elm change people's lives. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if you are experiencing the symptoms we're talking about, try slippery elm. It's not going to be, um, it's not going to treat the underlying cause in a lot of cases, but from a symptom point of view and starting to help, just having slippery elm, particularly when you are experiencing that burning sensation or that pain, mix you know a teaspoon into some water and it can be very very instantaneous mm. as far as soothing that mucosal lining it's just wonderful um i know i've again i've used it plenty of times myself um and then you know there's also we were talking earlier about the the bitters so there are certain types of supplements that we'll use there that are very like that come from food that are very strong bitters and encourage those secretions or we might use different types of digestive enzymes that support the stomach secretion so that's something that we'll delve into and again in clinic that is again we always bang on about individualized treatment but that's why having a consult so important because we can pull it apart and go all right, what do you need? Because not everyone we're going to yep. treat the same. Do we need to really support stomach secretions here? Or is this more of a soothing of inflammation? Or is this more of um, an exploration into underlying SIBO? Like what's actually yep. at play here? Um, but yep. then, yeah, things like the bitters um, food-wise we talked about, which is generally going to be good to explore for our clients and go, do we um, need to, which is, Generally, everyone's going to be um, taking 
I can't think of the words, but it's going to be advantageous for anyone to be including those bitter foods we're talking about, Uh greens with their meals, or even a little bit before um, putting that apple cider vinegar and those lemons onto those bitter greens. Um, I'm thinking you mentioned good old rocket, but even things like radicchio and um, even what was that? Sorry. Endive, that lettuce, like that's a pretty common one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So including those in our meals can be really, really wonderful. Um, yeah, they were probably the main ones that I was thinking about. Is there any that you can think about? I'm just thinking without, as we always say, we don't want to be sitting here listing supplements because that's not what this is about. But what we're trying to highlight is that we do have some pretty amazing um mm treatments that we can do to really help out here from a symptom picture quickly but also to start dealing with the underlying cause and i would say the supporting the digestive secretions um reducing inflammation with the sorts of things we're talking about can be very profound but majority of the time there will then be an underlying cause so we can do those things initially but then we need to look at the person and go all right we've got these things supported let's figure out what is causing this. Do we need to look at SIBO testing? Is this lower bowel? Do we need to do stool testing? Um, Is this a high stress situation? Are you just like so stressed to the eyeballs and we need to look at working with that? So what, what's going on here for you? Is there um, like, is there parasite or bacterial involvement? So we have to then dive deeper. The other thing I was going to say too, like, is, is there a massive food intolerance? Like, I know like we, we always go, like we're so bacterially focused, um, with the bowel and all of that too, but some of like, and this is not for everyone with reflux, but again, some of the things that I've seen being massive game changes apart from gluten or wheat that I've just mentioned is dairy in terms of acid reflux. Like. Yeah, that's not to say everyone should pull dairy out of their diet. Like diet, like if you don't have an issue with dairy, source good quality dairy and consume yeah. it like there's no well, – probably not like there's no tomorrow, <laughs> but consume it and enjoy it. But I do think for like – I know I've had quite a few clients where, yeah, obviously, again, there there is – by the time it usually gets to the stage that, you know, they're in seeing us, it's usually gone beyond like what is like just a short-term thing. It's yeah. usually a bit more long like long stretch, they've seen gastros, they've been on Nexium. So it's yeah. usually got a bit of time to set itself up and we're usually looking at, you know, a multifaceted yeah. like list of, you know, causative factors. So we've potentially got SIBO going on, we've potentially got some food, strong food intolerances and we've potentially got some, you know, pretty strong imbalances happening in the large bowel coupled with, because of all of that, we've got then coupled with, you know, low stomach acid or low hydrochloric acid um, secretions or overactive hydrochloric acid. So, yeah, like yeah. it's usually... I think food intolerances would be another big one because that a causes just pisses off the whole gut lining depending on what your yeah. food intolerance intolerances are, but also too yeah it can cause some pretty nasty upper GI symptoms. So yeah, no, that's a goodie definitely, and it's it's a common one, and again probably one that sometimes is easy for us to slip by. <laughs> it's just become yeah. so common, but as I think what's important you just highlighted too, it's that multifaceted um, approach that ends up becoming what is so important with how we would approach the treatment here because usually there'll be that that food intolerance then tied up with these other factors because it has been long-standing and it has poor dysbiosis or it has led to 
SIBO or whatever that might be. But, you know, sometimes we get those beautiful cases where it is just a matter of removing a food intolerance and that's all that it is. And we're like, hello, happy days. That was easy. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't get yeah, one of those the clients these days at the JCN Clinic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know if it is that simple these days we're kind of like oh my god yep you just need to pull that food out we'll give you a little bit of digestive lining love for you know a couple of months and see you later exactly <laughs> gone are those days <laughs> well I think that's pretty much it is there anything else you wanted to add before we finish up I feel like we've covered it all pretty well yeah Awesome. All right. Well, as per usual, if anyone has any questions or if there's anything um, that's come up that you'd like more information on, please feel free to reach out to us. So you can always contact us through our socials on Instagram or Facebook. Um, you can also reach out to reception, which is reception at jessicacox.com.au. And um, don't forget to share this episode. It's a, a real goodie and I, I know a lot of people listening will not only maybe have experienced these symptoms themselves or know someone that does. So it's a good one to share and get people to realise yeah. that underlying core treatment that's so important. Um, but other than that, bloody awesome chatting to you guys. <laughs> And yep. um, if there's anything else, yeah, you'd like to hear from us, just let us know. Over the coming episodes, we'll be um, sharing more thoughts from other prackies at the JCN Clinic. So we'll be mixing and matching it around while I'm away. So you'll hear more from M and a bit more from Paige and Alana. Um, so, yeah, that's going to be really fun too. But otherwise, I'm going to say goodbye and I'm going <laughs> to let Krista say goodbye as well so the, she can get back to her little bug there who's been very well behaved but it's I'm up starting until the last to five minutes. Up until the last five minutes it's honestly like yeah. I'm like my little child's had a nap and now she's awake she's and ready she to rumble <laughs> but yeah all right guys thank you for listening um and yeah honestly any any thing you want to ask just either let us know obviously yeah with what jess was saying we're going to do some different podcasts with some of the other girls um over the coming month or two while jess is away so just let me know if there's any topics you want specifically covered obviously jess and i will do our best to get a few in there as well it just depends on wi-fi and where the frig she is (laughs) (laughs) but we'll do our best all right we'll chat to you next time Bye.